bigger mistake, seven, eight, nine, or one, two, three? Well, one in t- one is the worst thing that's ever happened to all of movies. in humanity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> episode like one the is fall just and episode awful. One. So everything about episode one is awful. Not to mention they killed Darth Maul, and then later you have worthless Dooku as one of your bad guys who stinks, and Grievous who stinks. When you had an awesome bad guy, let Maul be in three movies. There's a lot of problems with episode one, not to mention Jar Jar Binks. Hi, and welcome back to Out of Curiosity, where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I am Garland. And I'm Nick. And today we have the the, the cheery little topic. We're picking up on uh, episode 29, which is the question of what happens after we die. And in that one, we focused primarily on uh, the destiny of what we would say those who are in Christ. And so now we have the question of what about those that are not? And it brings up the topic of hell. And so uh, now we have to dive into what does the scripture say about this concept? Um, it can be really frightening for us. It obviously is a, it's something that we should be sober in as we have this conversation because uh, this is a part of the scripture that is serious and weighty. It has to do with sin and judgment. And so uh, we want to enter into this conversation with a certain amount of just humility and uh, respect for God. So, so help get us going here, Nick. Yeah, well, so when we talk about hell, I mean, the question most people ask is how how can this even work with the God of love that we know, uh, the God of love the right. Bible presents? How, how can this this idea of hell coexist with our loving God? It's really bothersome for a lot of people, and so I think we need to start with trying to seek a biblical definition of what are we even talking about when we talk about hell. Okay, um, I think Wayne Grudem's definition he gives in his systematic theology is really clear, really concise, and really helpful. Uh, Grudem says that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Okay. So a few concepts there that are important. First of all, Grudem is suggesting it's eternal. So that means it, it goes on. All right. Um, that it is conscious, meaning people are aware they're still persons with, with consciousness, and then it's punishment for the wicked. And so this is a place of torment. Okay. Um, and so that's a, that's a pretty heavy idea right. right out of the gate. So we need to see, is that is that biblically defensible? Is that, in fact, what the Bible teaches about hell? So what we're going to do is we're going to just survey a few of the key passages um, that give us this concept of hell uh, from the New Testament. It is not something, uh, hell, let me say it positively, hell is talked about in the New Testament. This is not a doctrine that we've kind of pulled out of nowhere. We have some concrete passages to look at. So we're going to begin uh, in Matthew chapter 25. Okay, Matthew 25. And uh, Garland, you read Matthew 25, verse 41. Okay, this is Jesus, and he's. I guess he's in his last week of his life here. So uh, he says... Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so in this passage, Jesus is teaching on what is to come uh, at the final judgment. And he he uh, describes a great sorting. Of those on his right and those this on his left. This is the sheep and goats. The sheep yeah. and the goats. And so, and so what, what he says is coming is that those who are not in the Lord, um, he says, are look at a few key components. First, depart from me. So there's a relational separation here. Okay. Um, that, that this judgment is a being removed from the presence of the Lord. Uh, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. Um, and so that's where you get this idea of something be eternal, something lasting forever, that's prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we have a question about fire here. Um, 
is fire being used? And in a lot of our traditional language, we picture people literally burning in fire. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't be clear here whether or not this fire is a, a literal fire or is, is fire a metaphor for some kind of pain and torment. Okay. And so, so, so maybe the picture of like a person, because I think when we read passages like this, we go, okay, well, I want to take the Bible literally. So it must be a place where humans are sitting and there's just burning sulfur, sulfuric fire lakes around them, and they kind of sit always being burned. Yes. Okay. And, 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 you know, Dante's Inferno uh, is right. like where we get all of our cultural images of circles of hell and all that, and all of that is speculation. Um, what we have is a statement, uh, a, a very, str- I think, seemingly straightforward statement that there is an eternal fire um, prepared for torment, for punishment of the of of the wicked here, and and we don't we we, we can't be too particular, um, both on the heaven side and the hell side. Um, when we read about streets of gold, um, is that a literal street that is bricked with gold, or is somehow that talking about how precious it is? Christians debate that. Mm-hmm. What seems not debatable is the idea of a separation at judgment between those who are in Christ and those who are not, and that those who are not being sent away to a place of eternal punishment. Okay. Um, further on in that same chapter, um, you get Matthew 25, 46. Would you read verse 46 in that same discussion? I will. He says, uh, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay, now what's important here is the parallel between eternal life and eternal punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people want to say that, that the the judgment of the wicked is only for a period of time. It doesn't last forever. They want to say eternal doesn't mean lasting forever. It means of a different age. Um, so they might say things kind of like a, a new age of punishment or something like that. The problem is, is it's put in contrast, or in, not in contrast, but in parallel to eternal life. And the clear teaching in the New Testament is that our life in Christ goes on forever. Right, And so eternal life put next to eternal judgment or eternal punishment seems to say that this punishment lasts. Um, another example comes from Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Okay, Mark 9, verse 43. Mm-hmm. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, this is Jesus again, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Yeah, and so again, once again, the, the image that seems to be coming up again and again is the perpetual nature of this place. Never goes out. It never yeah, goes okay. out. It burns forever. Um, we get the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where you see, again, two destinies. Um, the Lazarus, who's a, a beggar who trusts in the Lord, is, is in heaven at Abraham's side. The rich man's in hell in a place of torment. Um, and again, he's in a kind of agony in this place. Um, and then we can jump some of our more particular images of this judgment come from the book of the Revelation. Okay. And admittedly, the Revelation is filled with figurative imagery. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I've not heard anyone that pictures a literal dragon running around the Middle East with a woman riding on its back. Um, but that is kind of a cool picture. That is a cool <laughs> picture. Most people understand right. the dragon and the woman represent something. Right. And so while we're not assuming that all of the revelation is literally picturing exactly what's going to happen, it is describing something. And so these images mean something. They are pointing to a future reality. Um, while it's sometimes hard to know how literally to take those images. Is, uh, it, is it fair to assume that the people reading this probably have a pretty good idea of what good idea of what he means? Man, I don't know. Okay. Because when you read the like very early church fathers, 
there's parts of Revelation they're, they're baffled confused. by too. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it, it's I I don't know I don't know how readily obvious these images would have been or if there was a level of mystery even to the original readers some people read the revelation and go oh it's a code all of the readers got the code Mm -hmm. other people say no some of this some of this imagery is puzzling and it probably was puzzling to the first century it sounds like we might need to do an out of curiosity on the book of revelation so put that down make that that a job for you that sounds great we'll look forward to that one so in the meantime what we can say is this is pointing to real concrete things that are coming even if we don't know how literal the images are to be taken so would you read revelation chapter 14 Yes. Verses 9 to 11. It says this, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And I'm guessing this mark goes back to chapter 13 at the end of the thing there. Yeah, and without having time to go into everything about the mark of the beast and all that is, this is, this is a judgment on those who align themselves with Satan okay. instead of and against Christ. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a lot in context here in Revelation that we, we can't work out at this time. But again, I think there's something we should note, that there is an, a consistent idea of there being conscious, ongoing torment for those who are aligned against Christ. Uh, again, we see this idea coming up again in, in Revelation 14. Uh, let's also take a look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 10 says this, And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so there's this recurring refrain here that there is this place of torment that goes on forever. And, and that's how you get a theologian like Wayne Grudem coming to his definition, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Okay. Now, most of us, when we read those descriptions of God's wrath, of God's uh, his, his settled anger against sin, um, we get squirmy. Yeah. We get really It's, it's hard to read that in the modern world. It yeah. really is. It's really uncomfortable. Um, and uh, I think it raises the question, like, how do we sit with that? Mm-hmm. How do we sit with this idea that God will judge sin and sinners? And, uh, and I think there's a couple of things we need to say. First of all, we need God to be just. We need a God of wrath. Miroslav Volf is a, a Yale theologian, and he grew up in a part of the Balkans where he witnessed absolute atrocities. Um, and he, he made this comment. He said, the idea that you would have a loving, saving God who has no wrath can only grow up in a place where there's no tragedy. Right. You know, where there's where there's no great injustice. I think he says something like it takes the quiet of the suburb where everything is comfortable and sleepy to develop that kind of yes. theology. But when you grow up in I think he says something like surrounded by the blood of the innocent crying yeah. out, you did you cry out for a God that is just. Yes. And yeah. and so anyone who's ever truly experienced uh oppression, violent abuse, 
you know that sense and that feeling of, I need someone to set this right. Right. And so what our faith tells us is God is the one who sets things right, and he does it in a way that is perfectly just, because when humans try to settle scores, we always make things worse. It doesn't go very well. It does yeah. not go well. We don't have we don't have the ability to discern what is just and what is right. And so the first thing I think we need to put on the table is that we need a God who's just. We need a God who punishes evil, who punishes wickedness. Um, and what's beautiful is we also have a God who offers mercy. And that's that's the beauty of the cross, is the cross, the cross lets those two worlds come together because it's easy to point to the really evil, wicked person and call for their judgment. But the reality is um, that the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. Mm-hmm. And so I have wickedness and evil that is deserving of hell in me. And, and that's the beauty of the Christian gospel is that God offers mercy to everyone. Uh, he offers grace and forgiveness by the proclamation of what Jesus has done to every person. So what we don't have, um, I remember I hear, I hearing one person speak out against Christianity, and they said, if you believe God condemns sinners to hell, then that must lead to you taking a judgmental posture toward everyone who disagrees with you. And the counter to that is, well, no, because the Christian gospel doesn't proclaim that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Right, right, yeah. Christian gospel says everyone's a bad person. Everyone's going to hell without the grace of Jesus. So we get to we don't have an us and them mentality on earth mm-hmm. where we say we Christians are the good ones and all of you non-Christians are the bad ones. Actually, it says every single one of us are the same. No one's righteous before God. We're all desperately in need of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing we should have is we should have a level playing field of everyone is need of everyone is deserving of judgment and in need of grace and Christ offers that grace to all who will believe. Mm-hmm. The second thing we should say is if the idea of conscious eternal judgment makes us uncomfortable it made Jesus uncomfortable too. In Luke chapter 19 when when Jesus approaches Jerusalem and he sees a city that he knows is about to reject him. He knows that they are going to reject their Messiah. And as a result of that, Rome is going to come crush Jerusalem. He knows that their judgment for rejecting him is going to be this devastating period of war and death and pain. And Jesus wept. I mean, he just, the description is just this intense grief. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I wanted to take you under my wings. How much, if only you knew what would give you peace. Jesus wept over the reality of judgment. Mm -hmm. So it is not as if God is just stone-hearted toward judgment, or even worse, that he relishes in judgment, that he just delights in throwing people into hell. Actually, God is heartbroken over judgment. He's heartbroken over hell, even though it's right. I had a seminary professor who told the story when he was teaching the doctrine of hell in his class. Um, as he was describing this doctrine, a young woman on the front row of his class just just started crying. And he got really worried he had said something insensitive. And he said, is everything okay? I'm sorry. And she just said, I hate this. I hate the doctrine of hell. And another guy somewhere else in the class, stood up and pounded the table and said, I love the doctrine of hell. (laughs) I worship that people who reject my God will be judged forever. 
And the professor was kind of, he was just completely caught off that guard like by this That's a great moment. moment as a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and he said he felt like he total, totally fumbled it. Right. Because right. he, he's like, he's so caught off guard by the emotion in the room and he didn't know what to do. And he walked away and just spent some time praying and reflecting on it. And, and he said his conclusion that he came to, the seminary actually has a requirement for students to exhibit Christ-like character. And he said if he were to do it over again, he would suggest that the guy who stood up and said, I love hell, I love people being judged who reject my God, he said he thinks he would, if he was given a chance to do it over again, he would walk that student to the dean of students and say, we need to talk about if you have the Christ-like character that this Mm -hmm. school calls for. Um, Because Jesus exhibited sorrow. Jesus in that classroom, I think, would have been on the front row weeping with that girl. Um, and so what is our approach to hell? Um, I think it is right for us to feel uncomfortable. It is right for us to be grieved because I think that is God putting a little bit of his heart in ours, mm-hmm. that we also struggle with this idea and that motivates evangelism. And so somehow we have to carry with ourselves the tension that we really aren't capable of. Like there is this tension of the, the goodness of God the love and mercy towards sinners, a crying out for justice when we see children abused, when we experience wrongs, like we, we want justice and yet we struggle with justice. We want mercy and yet we're scared of mercy. And I think that is one of the things that faith calls us to is believing as hard as it is that God can get all that right, mm-hmm. that God can hold that tension of justice, wrath, punishment, mercy and grace that he is good enough and big enough to hold all that together and our response is to trust him to seek mercy and then to be brokenhearted over people who are headed for judgment and that should be our our motivation to take the mercy of god and the good news of jesus to them yeah i think that like the romans three twenty six might be a helpful just posture that god is both the just and justifier and looking at all of our doctrine of hell through the lens of the cross just would probably keep us from wavering too far to the left or to the right. Just, just because I think this question would get, would come up uh, if for somebody listening to this. So what do we make of, is God, is God sending them to hell? Is he, is he creating them for hell? Are they choosing it on their own? We don't want to go into full blown conversation about, you know, determinism versus sure freedom. But uh, I, I want to bring like the, the C.S. Lewis comments in Great Divorce. Like, help help somebody listening to this might have read that or might have this question. Help help us get our arms around that real fast. Yeah. So the question generally being, did God create people for hell? Is He sending them? Are they choosing it themselves? Um, and while in the history of the church, there's been a wide disagreement on this this issue. So I want to acknowledge that my best understanding of how to read these passages is that. People are responsible for their choices in rejecting the Savior. People are responsible for their choices in such a way that it is not, there is no one who goes to hell who's crying out, God forgive me, don't send mm-hmm. me to hell. Mm-hmm. There, there is no one in hell who has not chosen it. Mm-hmm. And there's no one in heaven who has not chosen Christ. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's no fear of you know, God sending someone to hell who's asking for mercy. Yeah, who's asking for grace, who's asking for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, I also think it would be going too far the other way for God to be totally passive 
Right. As if people are just running headlong into hell and God's going, I, I don't have anything to do with that. Like there is this sense in all of these passages we looked at that hell is God's judgment mm-hmm. on wickedness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somewhere in that tension between the two, it is, it is both the person's choices that send them to hell, that lead them to this place of judgment, and they are offered mercy and grace through the gospel of Jesus, and hell is also God's right response to sin. So using a word that I think oftentimes makes us uncomfortable, but I think it's necessary, that word is tension. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I need to be okay with that tension. I have saying? I think I have to. Um, in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses wrote that the secret things are for God and the revealed things are for us and our children forever. And what I understand Moses to be saying there is there's some things God hasn't fully explained to us, and a certain level of faith is trusting God with those things. But the things God has told us are what we cling to um, in faith. And so one of my favorite prophecies said, faith is not believing without evidence. Mm-hmm. Faith is believing without all of the evidence. Yeah, that's good. That there's some questions we don't have answered, and so what we do is we take what God has given us and we rely on it, and we trust that in those things that we can't fully explain, that we anchor in on the goodness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God. And when we don't know what to do with with the pain and everything that we do of hell, we trust that God's good. Mm-hmm. And we trust that his goodness is true even in the face of this. And once again, I, I, st- I go back to Jesus shows us the heart of the Father. And so looking at Jesus's response in these situations that he both in, in that chapter 19, back to back, you have two things. You have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and him turning over the tables in the temple in judgment. In judgment, yeah. <laughs> so you have the anger and the judgment and the weeping operating in the exact same chapter in Luke mm-hmm. inside of Jesus. And so somehow both that justice cry and that merciful weeping are both present in God. And, and somehow I think maturity in Christ looks like us being comfortable with both existing in our lives as well. Well, you said maybe four or five different times in, in this, just this 20 minute conversation that the cross is where that tension can, yeah. can, we have to, we have to hold it there at the, at the foot of the mm-hmm. cross. So uh, as always, if you have, uh, if you have questions, uh, please send them in. You can send them into ookuriosity.com uh, and just send those things into us. Uh, and we would love to process those more as we go forward. But this, this gets us, I think, rightly oriented to this topic. And uh, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed how can a good God send people to hell? We encourage you to look into this for yourself even more and recommend looking in scripture at Matthew 25, 31 to 46, Revelation 14, 6 to 13, and 2 Peter 3, 9. And we also recommend Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem and The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.